the evidence of the eyewitness testimony within the Gospels is overwhelming. There is no doubt that the modern church in America has failed its people by not teaching them the earliest stages of church history. Apostolic succession paved the way to preserve the New Testament text. Welcome to another episode of Facts. Today we're going to be looking at kind of an obscure story mentioned by Eusebius. And one of the things I want to deal with, particularly in this story that he tells, is what do we do when a church leader, someone who is placed in a position of authority, goes into sin? Now, there are different levels of sin, and and some may differ from me on that, but there are different levels of sin. Uh, A sin of the mind and a sin of the thoughts may have lesser consequence than the great sins of actually pursuing those mindsets and thoughts and actually acting upon them publicly. But in a sense, we have this obscure narrative about John the Apostle and one of the bishops that he appointed in the Asia Minor region as related by Eusebius. And this individual in book three of Eusebius's work chose to go into a gang almost this this robbery uh these these vagabond type of living up in the mountains but also pursuing riches and solitude and chaos and and a life that's just not representative of anything that is relevant to Jesus Christ's kingdom and we have this story and i say it's obscure because It's kind of hard to tell if it was a true story or not. We don't know. It's based on tradition, uh, including what Eusebius himself said about it. He even says, listen to a tale, but it's not a mere tale concerning John the Apostle, which has been handed down and treasured up for the church's memory. He says, for when after the tyrant's death, now he had already established the tyrant, uh, was talking about Domitian. Now, let me just back up in this section of chapter 23 of book three of Eusebius, because he had already given the reality that John the Apostle had come back to um, the city of Ephesus after the death of Domitian and at the beginning of the reign of Trajan. And then he makes it clear that Trajan was the one that was the emperor when John died or when he remained, he said, until the time of Trajan, who is uh, the next emperor after Domitian's death. So he was on the island of Patmos by Domitian and then came back to Ephesus after he was released. Trajan became the emperor, and it was during Trajan's reign that John the Apostle died. And again, I want to continue to reiterate that. And the reality is I've, I've gotten a couple of messages. In fact, somebody was tweeting back and forth to me on an episode I did on the book of Revelation, oh, well over a year ago now. And in that, they were challenging my view because they believe Clement of Alexandria was actually not saying the book of Revelation and John happened during Domitian's reign. And I alluded to this very section. I actually quoted this section to the gentleman on Twitter stating that clearly the tyrant 
that Clement mentioned in his book, the, can the, What Can Rich Man Do to Be Saved? Uh, and in the book, The Rich Man, Can the Rich Man Be Saved? He states the tyrant died. And some would have us to believe that that was referring to Nero. And as I stated, if you look at what Eusebius did, he corroborated the work of Clement of Alexandria with Irenaeus in Against Heresies book two. And he's using both of them to defend the reality that John was talking and John was living in writing the book of Revelation under the reign of Domitian and died under the reign of Trajan. So that was not the early position of the church. That is not how Eusebius, a historian, actually attested to this. And he even uses two citations from Clement to demonstrate that that was not the case. And he tells the story of when John came back from the island of Patmos, came to Ephesus, started ordaining bishops, and that through the bishops, there was this disobedient bishop that John ended up pursuing. And because John the Apostle ended up pursuing him in his old age, and he makes sure to keep reiterating the man was old, it was not during the younger days of John, it was not during the earlier days of John, it was toward the end of his life. And therefore, using even this giant story about John from the tradition that came through what he believed from the side of Clement, because note in, in this section here, he says, Clement likewise in his book entitled What Rich Man Can Be Saved indicates the time, subjoins a narrative which is most attractive to those that enjoy hearing what a be how beautiful and profitable it is. Take and read account which runs as following. So Clement tells a story, and we're going to go through the story because I think it's part of the lesson of the uh, main point I'm getting at today about how to deal with disobedient leaders. When you get into this story, you begin to find that John is an old man and it is coinciding with the fact that this is post-apocalyptic vision on the island of Patmos. And because of that, Clement and Irenaeus clearly believed, and Irenaeus being closely connected to John, that the writing of the apocalypse took place during the reign of Domitian, not Nero. Again, uh, I don't mean to beat this dead horse on this program. It is, It cannot be historically defended that John wrote the book of Revelation before 70 AD. It is not capable of being defended historically. I know that many are trying because they have a presupposition in their view of the end times and eschatology. I know that there's this semi-preterist push that needs to make their, their theology work. I don't work that way. I would rather be both historically accurate and textually accurate because I don't think they're going to contradict each other. There are appealing arguments to it in the book of Revelation that make it seem pre-70, but if you actually look at some of the time of Domitian's persecution, because he's even talked about by Eusebius, as having a miniature Nero moments. Uh, in his persecution and the following kind of persecution could just as easily fit into what Domitian did for about three years that would work similar to what Nero did. 
And in fact, Eusebius reports that Domitian, his family lost their honor because of the way he acted in those years. So I do not believe that we have to subject ourselves to this eschatology perspective in order to change history to fit it. We don't need to do that. The evidence is clear and Clement of Alexandria is clearly not in the business of defending uh, the idea that Nero was the emperor during John's reign. He tells a whole story that would actually deal opposite. And this is the story. He says, listen to a tale, which is not a mere tale, but a narrative concerning John the apostle. He says, it's been handed down and treasured for the memory of the churches. For when, after the tyrant's death, he returned to the island of Patmos to Ephesus. See, there you go. Clement is clearly believing. This is after he left Ephesus and the tyrant was as he already corroborated earlier, Domitian. So now this is during the time of Trajan. He went away upon the invitation of the neighboring territories of Gentiles to appoint bishops in some places and other places to set and order hold churches. Elsewhere, to choose to the ministry some one of those who was to be pointed out by the Holy Spirit. Now let's just pause right here as well. Uh, we begin to see that John did not die in the island of Patmos. I know that that has been stated. I've even heard it in sermons. Uh, John did not die on the island of Patmos. He was released. Uh, he was marooned there while Domitian was doing an investigation. If you missed that entire explanation, go back in the podcast archives, find the one I did on is the book of Revelation scripture or spurious, and you will find in that episode my full explanation of what's happening there. But let's continue in this narrative. It says, when he had come to one of the cities not far away, and had consoled the brethren in other matters, he finally turned to the bishop that he appointed. And seeing a youth of powerful physique, of pleasing appearance, and of ardent temperament, he said, this one I commit to you in all earnestness in the presence of the church, and as Christ is witness. And when the bishop had accepted the charge and had promised all, he repeated the same injunction with the appeal to the same witness, then departed to Ephesus. But the presbyter, taking home the youth, committed to him, reared, kept, cherished, and finally baptized him after he had relaxed his stricter care and watchfulness with the idea of putting upon him the seal of the Lord he had given him perfect protection. So here's what happens. This young man was very appealing to John the Apostle. He begins to mentor him, take him in, seeing the Lord doing something on this young man's life starts training him and instilling in him value and faith and practice and even baptizes him, uh, takes him into his own home as his own son and gives him an environment of, as he states, perfect protection. This is spiritual perfect protection. And in this, this child, this young man starts growing up. It says, but some use of his age, idle and desolate, were accustomed to doing evil practice, corrupting themselves when he had thus prematurely freed from restraint. So he had friends. These friends were enticing him to do evil with them. At first, they enticed him by costly entertainments. Then when they'd set forth at night for robbery, they took him with them and finally demanded that he should unite with them in some greater crime. So they got into some stealing. They got into some robbery. And then they wanted him to do a bigger crime than those. He started falling into this peer pressure, if you would. 
It says he gradually became accustomed to such practices and on account of his, of the positiveness of his character, leaving the right path and taking the bit in his teeth, like a hard mouth, powerful horse. He rushed the more violently down into the depths. And finally, despairing of salvation in God, he no longer <clears throat> meditated what was insignificant, but having committed some great crime, since he was now lost once for all, he expected to suffer like fate with the rest. Taking them, therefore, and forming band of robbers, became a bold bandit chief and most violent, bloody, most cruel of them all. So um, let's, just, let's just pause here. This, this young man found favor in the eyes of John the Apostle, was taken into his own home, raised and trained in the truth. And this child, this young man, as he grew up, became a part of evil men, young men who wanted to do evil robbery. He ends up raising himself up as a leader. And this is the very thing that John saw in him. He saw a strong physique, a well-spoken, well-put-together young man who God had gifted greatly in leadership, was raising this young man up to be a bishop, a leader in the churches to succeed the apostolic succession. Now, in this practice, the young man sways away from the true path and becomes joined into the havoc and the robbery and the criminal activity of this gang. And he raises himself as a chief bandit, being the most violent, the most bloody and cruel of any of them by the end of this. You see, this is the thing that uh, this young man had the potential to lead. But see, he wasn't leading a church. He ended up leading a gang. He had the quality, he had the ability, he had the experience, he had the training, and he threw it all away. Time passed, and some necessity having arisen, they sent for John. But he, when he had set in order the other matters on the account which he had come, said, Come, O bishop, restore us the deposit which both I and Christ commit to you, the church, over which you preside being witness. But the bishop was first confounded, thinking that he was falsely charged in regard to money, which had not been received, and he could neither believe the accusation respecting which he had not, nor could he disbelieve John. But when he said, I demand the young man and the soul of the brother, the old man groaning deeply and at the same time bursting into tears said, he is dead. How? And what kind of death? He is dead to God, he said, for he turned wicked and abandoned and at last a robber, and now instead of the church, he haunts the mountain with a band of people like himself. So John is like, all right, so where's this young man that that I've, I mean, so the bishop thought that he was, John was accusing him of stealing or something like that. But no, he was asking for the deposit. He left a young man there in training. He had invested in this man. He comes back to bring him out. And the bishop says, uh, he's gone. And not only is he gone, he's a gang leader. And so here's what ends up happening in the story next. The apostle rent his clothes, beating his head with great lamentation, said, a fine guard I left for a brother's soul, but let a horse be brought me, brought to me and let someone show me the way. And he rode away from the church just as he was coming to the place. He was taken prisoner by the robbers at the outpost. So John is now captured. 
He, however, neither fled nor made entreaty, but cried out, for this did I come, lead me to your captain. So John's captured. He's like, look, I want to talk to your leader. The latter, meanwhile, was waiting, armed as he was, but when he recognized John approaching, he turned in shame to flee. So the young man sees John being carried by his, his band of brothers over here, and then John walking up, the, the young guy tries to leave. He runs away. But John, forgetting his age, there he is, old man, pursued with all his might, crying, crying out, why, my son, do you flee from me, your own father, unarmed and aged? Pity me, my son, fear not. You still have hope in this life. I will give account to Christ for you, and if need be, I will willingly endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For will I give up my, for you, I will give up my life. Stand, believe. Christ has sent me to you. So John is saying, look, whatever crime you may have caused, whatever sins you have done, I, if it requires a death penalty, I will die for you. I will take it the same way Christ suffered death for us. I mean, this is an amazing act of love by John. He truly loved this criminal guy. I mean, he saw him as a son, even called out my son. Don't fear, there's still hope for you. You see, in this young man at this point, I think we need to take heed here as churches, as leaders, as friends, as family. There are people that flee from the presence of God into great sin. And it is clear to me the young man truly was never saved. And you're going to see in a minute that that's the case. And, not, and I don't necessarily want to get into that massive of a debate here, regardless of your opinion. He was baptized even. John, the apostle, baptized him. So I want to pause here and say a couple of things and we'll finish this story. Number one, if John, the apostle, can train young men who leave the faith, or deviate into sin, I think that there are parents that may be listening to this. You have a child or a grandchild who has wandered from truth, who has uh, jumped into mis just unfortunate circumstances of life. They've fallen into sinful pleasure, desire, or passion, uh, or practice, and you're watching it like like a person standing there off in the distance seeing a car wreck and do nothing about it. And you blame yourself. You blame yourself. Now, I want you to pause and ponder this for a minute, that even the apostles trained young men and women who left the faith or went into sin. Jesus trained a man named Judas who turned out to be the greatest traitor in history. Now, I will say, if you're a parent and you did everything wrong and you constantly did wrong as a parent, yeah, you probably should look into a mirror. But if your goal and your desire was to carry out all the things that you desired in Christ to instill into your family and your children, and they walk away from that, you need to stop beating yourself up. They made their choice. 
And you need to realize that even the apostles trained young people and raised them in their own homes who ended up like this. That's number one. Number two, how should you pursue that person? How should you pursue the wandering child, grandchild, friend, sibling, etc.? John pursued him with a few things, and I want you to note this. Hope. He said, you still have hope of life. Here's a man in the midst of his greatest triumph of sin. And I mean not of sin, I mean triumph in sin. He's a leader of a gang. He has accomplished great strategy and leadership amongst other people. John comes to him and gives him hope. And that he too, number one, says you still have hope of life. Like you're not dead yet, you still have hope. (laughs) Number two, that he would intercede for him to Christ. He said, I will give account to Christ for you. And third, he offers sacrificial love. I will endure your death as the Lord suffered death for us. For you will I give up my own life. This is the strategy John used. He came that there was still hope because the person was still living. Two, he was interceding on his behalf to Christ. Three, showing sacrificial love to where he would even bear the consequence of sin with him if he is willing. Now note the response of the young man. And he, when he heard, first stopped and looked down. Then he threw down his arms and he trembled and wept bitterly. And when the old man approached, he embraced him. So the young man is broken over his sin. He sees John is not there to destroy him. John is not there to call hell down on him. John is there to offer him hope and life and love. Now, again, the young man could have walked away from this and chose his own fate. But here, he put down his arms, wept bitterly, And John approached him when he saw brokenness and hugged him. It says, making confession with lamentation as he was able, baptizing himself a second time with tears and concealing only his right hand. But John pledging himself, assuring him on oath that he would find forgiveness with the Savior, besought him, fell upon his knees, kissed his right hand itself as now purified by repentance and led him back to the church and making intercession for him with prayers and struggling together with him and continual fastings and subduing his mind by various utterances. He did not part, as they say, until he had restored him to the church, furnishing a great example of true repentance and of great proof of regeneration, a trophy of the visible resurrection to life. Now, this young man was in training to be a leader in the church. 
He was purified by repentance. John, not only after the man repented, did not just leave him be. He went back and made prayers, struggling, notice this, struggling together with him in continual fastings, subduing his mind by various utterances. He did not depart, as they say, until he was fully restored to the church. Did you hear that? Restoration is a process, not a prayer of repentance. The prayer of repentance starts the process. So how can we, as a, as a people, as a church, take young people or even disobedient leaders, like this young man who was a leader in training, if you would, who deviated away, when they do come to repentance, we should follow the process of John. We should be there with them in step of discipleship, utilizing our gifts and abilities to restore them back to God and the community. Notice he was restored back to the church. He was restored back to God when he repented. But he needed restoration in the community. He had built a reputation for himself. He had caused people to question his sincerity. John did not leave that young man's side until full restoration was complete. So how do we deal with people, with leaders, with church members, with young people in training who leave the path, as it states here in chapter 23 of section book three of Eusebius? They leave the path. We pursue them with hope. While they're living, they may have a chance. Now, there is a flip side of this, and I don't want to ignore that either. There is a flip side. The flip side is they abandon everything and they die in a state of sin. <clears throat> now, we have no control over that. And, and there are people that God gives over. But here's the reality. We don't know when and where that happens. As humans, our pursuit of people is in the state of love and affection and hope and intercession for them until life is taken from them. That doesn't mean we condone their sin. That doesn't, nowhere in here does John say, no, what you're doing is okay. I realize you're dealing with some childhood problems or you're working out your trauma your own way. And, and, you know, I'm fine with that. No, he doesn't sit here and, and, and patronize and, and sit here and pat the guy in the back, tell him he's doing a good job. And he's proud of what kind of, and, you know, even though he's not the leader, he would want him to be, uh, at least I can see you've actually risen to the level of leader. And for that, I'm proud of you. No, he does not sit there and condone the sinful actions of the young man. And by the way, the young man didn't even have to be called out. He didn't even have to be called out. He didn't sit there and say, you've done this, you've done this. Do you not realize what you've done here? The guy knew. He stopped and looked down in embarrassment, dropped his arms, trembled under conviction, and wept bitterly. 
John pursued him not with an axe, He didn't come after him to kill him. It says, John, forgetting his age, pursued him with all of his might, crying, why, my son, do you flee from me, your own father, unarmed age? Pity me, my son, fear not. You still have the hope of life. <clears throat> now, it's very clear to me, this young man seemed to have deviated because he truly never in conviction came to Christ with full commitment. It talks about in this section, uh, baptizing himself a second time with tears. And that this young man would find forgiveness with the Savior. But I think it's interesting that he did not say he would find forgiveness, and he uses a different term for God. He uses the term Savior. Because that's what the man needed. And he kissed his right hand itself as if now purified by repentance. The hand that committed these sins was needing purification. And here in the last line, it says, furnishing a great example of true, true repentance and a proof of regeneration, a trophy of visible resurrection to life. The man demonstrated what it means to look like death to life. It's kind of like the prodigal son. This, my son, was dead. Now he is alive. And there may be some in my audience that think, well, Stephen, I don't agree with your soteriology there. That's fine. But even then, if this man was saved and just wandering and he came back, his repentance and restoration is evidence that he truly was saved because he didn't stay in that state of sin. However you want to look at it. This young man's story is evidence of true repentance and regeneration and a trophy of what it literally and visibly looks like to be restored to, resur to, to resurrected to life from the dead. Because remember what the bishop said earlier in the story. He's dead. And he's like, John's like, what? What kind of death? And he's like, no, he ain't dead physically. He's spiritually dead. He's dead to God. Again, another reason why I believe the young man was not saved. But we find this intriguing story right in the midst of, of uh, this narrative about John and his time during the island of Patmos and his return from it. That he was still a man who pursued people. And he took this young man who he wanted to be a leader and tried to restore him back to what he believed God had called this young man to do. And that is a lead a church. Be in training to lead a church under the watchful guise of the bishop there. Now, we don't know who it is. 
We don't know who the man's name is. Uh, maybe there's some connections, there's some theories, but we don't know. But herein we do know this, that when we deal with people, whether it's a leader in a church or a person that's in training to be a leader in the church, they, they fall into sin or they go into abandonment mode. We can handle things the way John did here. And my greatest concern is we're watching people deviate from the path left and right. And the response of, of Christians is quite severe. Now, again, I, there's another extreme here I don't want to ignore. We don't patronize and compliment sinful lifestyles and actions. John did that nowhere in this section, nor did the bishop that John appointed that this young man was with. I'm seeing that extreme too. You know, just, yes, love the person, pursue the person, give hope to the person, but condoning their actions is not going to lead them back to repentance. Loving kindness will, but not loving their sin. It doesn't say love their sin back to, will lead them back to repentance. It says loving kindness will lead them back to repentance. And so God doesn't love their sin, neither should we. But our approach after we've rejected the sin should be next, after fully establishing our position on their actions and lifestyles, hope that while they're living, repentance is possible. Two, John's approach was then intercession. Praying and interceding on behalf of the person. And even sacrificial love to the point where John did, offered to lay down his own life for the young man and bear the consequences with him this young man would just cease from his lifestyle and turn and come back to Christ. He would bear the consequence in a sacrificial love for him. This is the gospel. So I asked the question, when we're dealing with disobedient leaders, how do we deal with disobedient people? How do we deal with people who leave the faith? How do we deal with people who apostatize? How do we deal with people who fall into sin? How do we deal with people who seem to abandon faith? What is our response as a church? Our goal is clearly the end of this section, and that is to restore a person back to the church. Now, there's times where th if this young man would have rejected the restoration, rejected repentance again, he probably would have signed a death sentence to himself. John wasn't going to twist his arm. There is a time where we have to just let people go. That's a reality. There are people that Paul traveled with that he lost as companions. Demas forsook him, loving the present age. 
There are people like Diotrephes who were part of the apostolic churches who deviated and rejected apostolic leadership and letters. We talked about that. Third John. We, we have seen over and over again where people, the apostles trained, went into error and left. And it, and it cost many of their lives. Some of them went into sin and lying and all this. I mean, Ananias, Sapphira. I mean, we've seen people fall into error even in the lifetime of the apostles. People the apostles trained fell into error. And some of them stayed there till death. Others, like this young man, came to repentance, found true repentance, true life from death. And so within this framework, within this narrative, I want us to learn how to deal, that take this example in this story of Eusebius. Now you say, well, we don't even know if it's a definitive truth. Well, it's a tradition. I get that. We can't treat it as scripture, but it's been passed down and related by Clement of Alexandria. Perhaps it's true or partially true or half true. The principles here are still worth noting. And following, because every bit of this story is reflective of what the life and ministry of Jesus teaches us, and also the apostolic doctrine within the epistles. This is consistent with New Testament teaching. And I think we have a lot to learn from this. As churches, as leaders of our homes, how to deal with the wayward. How should the church deal with those who fall into sin, whether they're a Christian that fell into sin or they were never saved and they go out and continue to live sin that was always in their heart. They're just now living it out. Whichever situation it is, this is our approach. Hope, intercession, sacrificial love. And a call to repentance. And in doing so, I think we could see more people restored. See, I think that there's people that have sinned and we've caught them in sin or they fell into sin and churches just, just abandon. They do nothing. There's no approach or they try once. And I'm not saying that we should keep getting hurt, putting ourselves in there. You know, the point is leave the door open. And if God gives us a divine appointment with that person again, we should use the strategy John did. And see if God uses that to restore them back and bring them into repentance. That may be what's used by God, our approach to win the heart of the person. There's much to learn here. There's much to say. But when it's all said and done, this is our management of how we should manage a sinner out of our congregations or out of our families and how we should, whether they're still saved or not, is for God to decide. But this is our approach for both. Because here's the truth. The sinner who's not truly saved, who is in the image of a saved person because they were surrounded by it, but in their heart they were truly lost and then they went out to live out what was always in their heart. Or, or 
a person who truly is saved and they made poor choices and they lived in the consequences of those for a short time. And then God worked them back to repentance. Either way, those two individuals, what they need is the gospel. And John gave this young man the gospel by giving him hope in Christ, interceding for him as Christ interceded for us, offering <clears throat> love and sacrifice to him as Christ offered love and sacrifice for us. Regardless, that individual needs the gospel. This is how we deal as a church and as families and as individuals and friends with those who leave the faith. Well, thanks again for tuning into another episode and learning about church history. See, this is good stuff. We can learn quite a bit from church history. Uh, when we, we dive into these things, we learn much about ourselves. We can learn much about how the early church dealt with matters and the apostles and how they dealt with matters too. Hopefully this was a good episode to kind of get us to stop and think for a minute and go, you know what? I need to change my approach. Or you know what? I know people right now in error and I need to think differently about them. Hopefully these ancient traditions that have been kept by historians can challenge us in our world today to think differently about those who wander from the faith and those who fall into sin. Hopefully you'll be able to uh, continue to tune into more episodes as we continue to go through uh, the church fathers and we go through the apocryphal works, the canon, the texts and the scriptures that we've been dealing with. And that these will continue to encourage you and challenge you and build your knowledge and your faith towards Jesus and towards the early church and what the Lord was doing then and how he can use it in our churches now. Stay tuned for more of the episodes to come. There will be those posted just about every week. Stay true to Christ. Stay true to his word. Love others. Bring the world to Christ through the gospel message of hope. Grace and peace to you.